Hello, Bigfoot enthusiasts. Scott here from Squatch America. And your favorite domestic goddess in the paddy wagon tonight drinking a caramel macchiato. <laughs> Yay. So, we got a great show for you tonight. Yes, uh, our guest that uh, couldn't be with us last week because it was Eastern Orthodox Christmas is with us tonight, Alexander Petikoff, who is one of the crew of the Small Town Monsters. But before we do that, play the intro. Oh. I was going to do an announcement first. <laughs> oh, we'll do an announcement okay. first. I wish you uh, would tell the me The 2022 Squatch Fest in uh, Longview, Washington. We are going to be there on the Saturday of that, uh, milling around, so come see us. Yep. So our, our favorite people are going to be there, and also Dr. Meldrum and Cliff Barrickman and David Polites in addition. Yep, and Shane. Well, he's <laughs> one of our favorite people, though. Yeah, okay. All right. <laughs> So now play the, the introduction. Play the okay, get to it. The intro. All right. So Without further ado, Hannah's got a wonderful introduction. I have a us. wonderful introduction that comes straight from our guest. So <laughs> Alexander Petikoff is a documentary filmmaker and multimedia artist, as well as an avid adventurer and outdoorsman constantly searching for the unknown. Kind of sounds like a high school teacher, but <laughs> okay. Traveling across the U.S. and the world, Alexander has looked into various cryptozoological creatures such as Sasquatch, the Loch Ness Monster, the Lake Champlain mos Monster, mystery big cats i'm very interested in those i want to hear more about that as well as other phenomena such as ufos and mysterious places ranging from the paranormal bridgewater triangle of massachusetts to the hermit kingdom of north korea the Hermit Kingdom of North Korea. I want to hear more about that, too. He has created short documentary films and series on these subjects, among others. While researching the Bigfoot Sasquatch topic, often more than others, Alexander has chronicled over 50 sightings and reports in his own state of New Hampshire, many of which have been discussed in his Granite State Bigfoot presentation, which we will hear more about, I'm sure, and will eventually be compiled into a literary work. Uh, he is also a Small Town Monsters crew member, representative of Lawrence International Cryptozoological mm -hmm. Museum, as well as a researcher with the Lake Champlain Zoological Inquiry. There's a lot of words in there. All right. It's a Lady. lot of words. I need, to, I need coffee. Alexander, hi. Welcome to the show. Hi, Scott and Hannah. Thank you so much for having me on. Thank you so much for being here, because you being here means we don't have to come up with anything. Great. <laughs> <Yeah. Right. laughs> well, I'm glad I could make it on, and um, I, I apologize for not being able to make it last week. I had my dates mixed up, but I am so glad that uh, Carrick did a wonderful job. He's yeah, an he awesome did. researcher, and I consider him a, a good friend. Awesome. Yeah, we had, we had a really nice talk. He's from up there in the Northeast. And, yep, he's uh, a fellow New Hampshireite, just like me. Oh, you yeah. are okay. Yep. Yes, I just read that. Oh, yeah, I know. We uh, we spent our last two summers in Maine doing research up there. Yes, I remember. I I believe I was in contact with you, and it, it the the dates we had just left the Katahdin area. I think right after that, and Carrick was with me as well as my buddy Eli, who's uh, often on uh, on crew with me. He's from California, so he yeah. was out here for that time period. So hey, we just I, missed each other, which is a yeah. bummer. Yeah. We actually, actually, I, I kind of met you on Facebook through Eli. He's the first one of your bunch that I got connected with. Oh, cool. And, and we had a footprint in our campground in Millinocket. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah. It was like 17 inches long. Yeah. And uh, it was like, what? That is and awesome. Just, yeah. And just uh, about a couple months later after that, um, one of our team members, uh, Donna, who's in the chat right now, found a a second a cripple foot. A mm. new oh one, yeah, right. Wow. Brand, brand new, new trackway. One, brand new trackway uh, in Vermont in the Bennington Triangle area. Oh man, that's awesome. So it's yeah, right the, there. You're right there. Yeah. There's, wow. There's, Check that out. There's the cast from it. So amazing. <laughs> yeah, that area of Bennington Triangle. A lot of weird stuff in that area. Yep. <clears throat> All right, so start asking brilliant questions. Brilliant questions. All right, we always start out with this. So tell us, 
your history. What got you into this? Why are you into cryptid weird stuff? Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Um, you know, when I was a kid, I was always really interested in nature and animals and dinosaurs as well, as many kids are. Especially I grew up in the 90s, so Jurassic Park was all the rage. So dinosaurs were everywhere, right? And I think that just kind of uh, translated over into watching documentaries about cryptozoology from you know learning about ice age animals and dinosaurs and that sort of stuff and it kind of just snuck in there but I, I vividly remember one of my first times learning about the concept of bigfoot or the yeti specifically was on a family ski trip up to the white mountains of new hampshire and my dad gifted me this uh this yeti i actually still have it here it's uh it's oh. <laughs> it's seen some rough days you know yeah. uh, with kids you know i grew up with yeah. this but it was it came with a little scroll and it's a very high you know quality kind of action figure came with a little scroll that was like an ancient papyrus that had the whole legend of the yeti he told me that story and something about the setting just made me instantly hooked on the idea of wow this this is really interesting and from that point on i started watching as many documentaries as i could on the topic eventually reading tons of books and i uh, kind of grew to be an armchair researcher when i was in high school i was eagerly following all the blogs and i remember following the georgia bigfoot hoax in 2008 very vividly that was when the blogs were a big thing it was lauren coleman's blog cryptomunda i remember every day checking for updates because there was no facebook or anything like that back then so that was sort of uh how i got into it and it wasn't until later on that uh you know i went through college and everything and kind of lost my interest in bigfoot for a bit finding bigfoot was on air i caught it actually at a friend's house as so many you know in my generation it's kind of an inspiration so i started looking back into it and uh, once I got out of school, I uh, decided to combine my passions for filmmaking with cryptozoology. So I started just sort of doing documentaries on things like the Loch Ness Monster. I, I got to visit Loch Ness and did a short wow. documentary on that. And then I wanted to do a feature originally on Bigfoot. But uh, I ended up getting a lot of interviews with people, not only in the local areas, but I went to California and, and visited Willow Creek and that whole area. I didn't make it to the film site then, but got to see Willow Creek and some of those casts and everything. And I was like, oh, how am I going to put this big documentary together? And it, it made sense to put it as a series. So I, I created a YouTube channel called Sasquatch Out of the Shadows and just started putting up interviews. And some of them are just you know, an interview with an eyewitness, and there isn't really a whole lot to it. It's just the straight interview, a little bit of B-roll. Maybe if they have a lot of the times they have a, a drawing that they maybe made, like an eyewitness rendering, uh, that'll be pretty much it. Not much, uh, not many frills. So not, And then the other episodes would be actual short documentaries, you know, 10, 15 minutes long. So it was kind of open-ended and that has since morphed into all sorts of stuff and, you know, getting out into the field and, and being an amateur researcher and trying to apply the scientific method as much as we can, you know, even though I don't really have an academic background, I still try my best. And I think I'm, I'm at the point now where, you know, you see a lot of the uh, things that maybe you believed in a few years ago and when you first get into the Bigfoot field that you realize there's a lot of, unfortunately, you know, things that just become fact in the Bigfoot world, right? With no basis, you mm -hmm. kind of start peeling that back a little bit and start saying, well, let's get to the let's get to the real truth. Let's get, see what's actually going on here. There's too much clickbait stuff and too much, you know, kind of uh, BS to, to use the term out there. So we kind of uh, want to look at what's actually going on. So uh, a lot has changed, I guess, in the six or so years that I've been doing um, kind of getting out of the field. Yeah, absolutely. I, I totally agree with with all the stuff that's going on. Uh, I kind of come from a scientific background. I'm actually an anthropologist. Um, right uh, my expertise was actually in Native American culture, uh, but you know, I studied forensic anthropology and paleoanthropology also because you have to, <laughs> you know, to get your right, right. But uh, and that's what kind of got me into it too is all the history uh, from the Native oh, point yeah, of view. Yeah. But uh, yeah, so I watched one of your document, one of the documentaries you did with uh, Shane Corson, actually up in the yep. Olympic Project and the nests, and we had Shane on talking about the nests uh, about a month ago. About a month ago. Oh, right on. And uh, so, what was your take on that? Being up there to see him, you were actually on site. Yeah, it was it was pretty surreal. Um, and you know, Shane and the Olympic Project—they're just a really great group of folks. Very nice, you know, very accommodating. Uh, they usually don't let people in there to film in uh, the nest site. They kind of keep it, um, not, I don't want to say to themselves, they they let people who they trust in, you know, and whether those are scientists or other folks, they're people like Jeff Meldrum or other associated academics that they want to kind of do a study and they don't just throw everything up online. 
So um, they have turned down a lot of offers, I guess, to do filming from major networks in that area about that topic. But, uh, you know, my buddy Seth Breedlove of Small Town Monsters, who I've been working with for a number of years now, um, got the okay to go in there and film with them. And really, we were the first ones to be let in to film in this site, uh, you know, in a kind of production capacity. So two films came out of it. One was on the trail of Bigfoot, The Journey, and then we have our sort of uh, tie-in film, although it is independent. It can be watched. You can watch both of them together. Uh, ours is Beyond the Trail Olympic uh, Bigfoot. And it was pretty interesting being down in there. Uh, first night we got there, it was actually the first day we flew in. Eli and I flew in. Uh, I was coming from Boston. Eli was coming from California. This was April of 2020. We hit the ground running. We drove up to Mount Rainier straight from the Seattle airport, went up there just to get some B-roll and check out the mountain. And then pretty much that evening, we went out to the Olympic Peninsula to meet up with Shane and some of the guys that were going to take us to this area where this uh, you know so-called nest site is. And it's private land, so we had to meet up with them and go through a gate and everything, pouring rain. So it was classic Pacific Northwest welcome. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. Uh, I'll, I'll never forget, you know, we get all geared up and we were actually going to be sleeping down uh, close to where the original nests were discovered in 2016. And this was the, the, none of the Olympic project had, had it slept in that immediate area. They had created that a little clearing in the Huckleberries about a week before we went down there. So we were going to be the first people along with them to really stay down there. Pouring rain, Eli and I are, are lugging our stuff in, soaked absolutely head to toe. And the, to get into this spot is really brutal. There are mm-hmm. a nine foot tall Huckleberry bushes pretty much surrounding you completely. I mean, at certain parts, you got to do an army crawl. You got to, you're, you're getting whipped in the face. There was a little bit of a trail now that's kind of been carved because they have people going back and forth. But um, in the rain, it was it was brutal. So we make it down there, dry off by the fire. The rain let up. Thankfully, that was the only rain we really saw that entire next five days we were in Washington, which was pretty unheard of for springtime in Washington. I mean, all the all the OP people are saying this is like the best weather we've seen so far. But uh, so in the actual original kind of nest site there isn't really so much you can see from those 2016 nests it's sort of all kind of deteriorated but mm-hmm. there's a few further down that we got to see that you could see it was just an area where there was a lot of sort of debris and it again it was kind of hard to tell but if you look at the pictures and some of the videos that they have of you know how thick these things were and how when you were if you were to lay in the nest there's almost three feet of huckleberries that keeps you off the ground so you know obviously when you're sleeping outside the key is to get off the ground you know keep that warmth in so the ground doesn't suck it out i mean that's a basic kind of thing but uh, my biggest takeaway was just that how insanely wild that area is i mean for somebody a human being to go down there and purposefully construct these nests i mean you would have had to have been so crazy motivated and i don't know what reason um uh, these nests were originally discovered by a timber surveyor who accidentally kind of came across them and had been working his entire life in the Pacific Northwest and never seen anything like this and had gotten a hold of Derek Randall's, um, who I guess he knew. And that's how the Olympic Project was given permission to go on this private property there. And, um, you know, I, I know there's some studies going on with the nests and possible eDNA stuff. I don't know what the results exactly are yet or if they're out. I don't believe so. Um, but uh it was fascinating, you know, being a few days in that nest site and just seeing how rugged it is and how the where these so-called nests, I mean, were um, set up basically almost on the edge of a cliff. You know, you have this sort of dip that goes into a ravine and you've got a river down below and that's where the salmon run comes through. Uh, so you have a great food source. Um, there's, you know, deer in the area. There's elk, uh, occasionally black bears. There are definitely mountain lions that traverse the area, but none of those animals are known to make formations like what these things were uh, and you could tell i mean some of these huckleberry branches are extremely tough to bend and from what they were saying was there there was stabbed in the ground and woven and just there was so much of this stuff in one little area that it was pretty uh pretty shocking pretty noticeable so you know i don't know again what to make of it i think when i was there i was definitely uh you know just perplexed by this is something you know you don't really you wouldn't expect to find um, and, and these guys have been studying that for a while and, and knowing the stories that Shane and some of the other guys told us as well about right before COVID, I believe they were down there and they actually interrupted something building one of these nests and they actually got footprints out of it and then casted a handprint uh, from that mud in that area where something kind of circled them and it was like a half built nest and, and they, they talk about it in both our film and the on the trail Bigfoot the journey film including the video when they were down there it was Shane and Todd Hale another member and, you know, they, they drew their weapons because they weren't sure what they were dealing with. They didn't see it. 
that's an area, of course, that has big cats and bears, so you don't want to take any chances. But, uh, yeah, I, I, I still don't know what to make of it. I mean, trying to wrap your head around it all. That area is just so wild, um, you know, and not even just where the nest site is, but the rest of the Olympic Peninsula, how much space there is out there and how impenetrable some of these areas are. And that's not even to mention other parts of Washington with the Cascades that obviously go down into Oregon. Uh, there's just so so much space. It's It's absolutely nuts. Yeah, that's something a lot of people, especially not not to uh, denigrate uh, Easterners, but people don't realize how big the mountains are and how much land yeah. we have out here in the West. Um, like right now, I, I started, I grew up in the Blue Mountains of Eastern Oregon. And, uh, Which, you know, if you're into lake monsters, you want to come out here. <laughs> yeah, there's <laughs> Wallowa Lake, yeah. Um, but... There's an interesting thing about a sidebar here, rabbit rabbit trail. Anyway, we have a uh, like rabbits. We have Wallawa Lake is in the Wallawa Mountains here in Eastern Oregon, and there's some weird thing that Wallawa Lake in Eastern Oregon and Crater Lake in Southern in in Southern Oregon, oh, yeah. all the way across the state are always exactly the same elevation. And the if same one goes down, the other one goes down. If and, one goes the up, wow. and the, and same, the temperature. same temperature. So there, there is a, there's a, a wild hair theory that there's like there's an underground. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. wow. And there have been sightings. But they're 500 miles away from each other. So yeah, that's, that's really interesting. We swam, we went to Crater Lake when we left Bluff Creek this past uh, summer and, and we're driving up into Oregon and we went swimming, but it was this surreal atmosphere because it was so hazy mm -hmm. and it honestly crater lake looked like the mediterranean to me that's what it reminded me of it was unbelievable <laughs> yeah. you jump but, in that water and it's just blue as far as you can see yeah but there are nessie like sightings in both lakes yeah. so yeah. just just something yeah. for you to put on your back burner there yeah well Lawa lake has <laughs> thing called it's called wally papa craig wally, just put it right. wally wally and wally hides <laughs> in Wallawa lake awesome. yeah so so anyway, it's time. What was that? What was I talking about though? I was going to say something. Uh, um, Pacific Northwest. Oh, oh yeah, mountains. about the about the about the distance. You know how big it is. Like in our research area, um, we're nationwide now because we travel full time. But sure. uh, when I was doing when we were um, specific to in the, the Blue Mountains in the Blue Mountains um, here, there's twenty seven thousand square miles of forest that has nobody living in it yeah you know? and the blue mountains connect the rockies in montana all the way to the cascades in oregon and uh, a lot of people that's a natural corridor i think between the two mountain ranges but uh you know that yeah, it's it's ridiculous i mean that if you just look at from that southern tip of the pacific northwest in kind of humboldt county and in northern california that that forest and all those mountains extending all the way up almost to Alaska. I mean, you have some of the most pristine wilderness in those areas that, in my opinion, is probably some of the best habitat for Sasquatch out there. Now, I do believe that these things have plenty of other habitat in other areas. I mean, the Appalachian Mountains as well. There are mm -hmm. you know a little bit more people in and out some of those areas in certain parts. But from, you know, Maine to Georgia, you have so much space in there. And it makes sense. A lot of those states have a lot of the other sightings that are outside of the Pacific Northwest are primarily kind of in those areas but uh so, yeah oregon was incredible i mean like i said we drove from pretty much bluff creek and that part of northern california has millions of acres of woods as well mm -hmm. between the six rivers and the trinity national forests there's just so much up there and then you drive straight in oregon same thing it just continues on all the way up to mount hood uh, and the mount hood area is another one we spent quite a few days at we were actually up there for about a week um we were hanging out with uh Cliff Berrickman and some of the folks over at the museum there, the NABC, and just hitting up some of the spots that they research in the Mount Hood area and going, we actually went with Shane Corson. Uh, he took us to the location of where he saw his first Bigfoot um, when he had his sighting uh, back in 2012. They were fishing up in a, one of these alpine lakes in the Mount Hood area. And they had a they, over the course of a few nights, they had some interactions and he saw one of these things. And we got to go to the very campsite that he had his encounter in and he told us all about it. So that was a really neat experience, but beautiful. I mean, the, the creepiest thing we ran into, though, was a group of Satanists in the woods, which was <laughs> oh, pretty no. wild. But. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, I think I think uh, 
Shane was telling us about that. That's in the Estacada, the Bigfoot, the Oregon Bigfoot Highway area. Yes, yeah. yep. It's if you read Joe Bielard's stuff, it's uh, we actually went to the sighting of the location of one of the really good sightings, and that's where we ran into these people doing some kind of ritual where we were trying to camp, and it just ended up being a really weird situation. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Darkness and falls, and there's tiki torches, and we're like, okay, we're going to get out of here. And on, and on that note, <laughs> yes. let's, uh, let's take a break. Oh, we yeah, will, we do our we will come break. back to questions in just a minute, but first, we have to try and pay for this endeavor, so here we go. <laughs> okay. Hey, honey, are you at all worried about the future? A little bit. A little bit? Well, you know... <laughs> I don't blame you. It's a little, little crazy out there. It's a fact. The best time to prepare for bad times is during good times. When you know a big storm is coming, you prepare in advance. Same goes for our future. Things seem calm right now, so it's the perfect time to prepare for the next big crisis or disaster. That's why you should stock up on emergency food from My Patriot Supply. They are America's largest preparedness company with millions of happy, well-prepared customers. Their food kits stay fresh for up to 25 years. They're an insurance policy you can eat. When you need it, it'll be there. Shop dozens of food storage kits now. Click on our affiliate link below. Their kits give you an abundance of food, totaling over 2,000 calories a day. Every family member in America needs one of these kits. You can't go wrong. Click on our affiliate link below to shop and save and get prepared for whatever comes today. Just as an aside, um, their chicken and rice is really, really good. I <laughs> yeah. like that. I, yeah. I, I, I don't we use this in the woods a lot, too. Oh, we just... use it in here. I don't, I don't <laughs> wait. I mean, that stuff is good enough for nightly eating. Anyway, moving on. Moving right along. Actually, we have uh, one of one of the guys who are affiliated with us here, uh, the Squatching Cowboy out of Texas. Because uh, yep. there's cool. Bigfoot down there, too. I've seen his uh, yeah. name pop up before in my uh, chat on my live stream. Really? Yeah, so yeah, his, real, Cowboy. his yeah. real name is Joe Pass, and he is a stellar human being. <laughs> yeah. He wants to know what you think your greatest uh, adventure was. Oh, there we go. Oh, man, that's a tough one. I don't know. <laughs> There's been a lot over the years. I mean, uh, I, I guess I'll stick with a recent one. I, I'd say 2021, uh, I saw more of the U.S. than I've ever seen before in my life. I mean, that was the first time I drove cross-country. For the first time, we drove from uh, New Hampshire to Utah and back. There you um, go. Yeah. Then, then I saw mo I saw uh, all three of the Pacific Northwest kind of territories. So, as I was talking about in April, we were in uh, Washington with the Olympic Project. Then in July, we were in Northern California and in Oregon, uh, and uh, so it was just incredible to to be able to see every kind of everything in between because I'd been to some of these other places out west before but never driving so I'd never really driven physically across the country and Utah is one of my favorite states with some of that nature out there so yeah being able to go backpacking in the high Uinta mountains was a was a real highlight for me that was something I've been wanting to do for a while oh that's awesome I, I know we we uh in 2020 sold our house sold everything bought an rv and we have been from oregon to maine from maine back to idaho through south dakota on the way then went down to texas went all up to southern states and back up to maine and now wow, we're back in awesome. oregon so yeah we have i haven't seen kansas yet we gotta yeah. go see are there squatch in kansas <laughs> i don't know and if so are they black and white corn, yeah. corn squatch maybe a corn squatch yeah. Dude, that sounds gross that, yeah. that's, yeah. that's like a bad podiatry situation or yeah. something Ew. oh man but one of the one of the places we really fell in love with was the katahdin area oh yeah. my gosh um, we climbed it we climbed that bad boy uh, that's one that's still on my list so i i've well, hiked a lot of the mountains out here in, in uh, New England, especially, I, I've hiked all 48 in New Hampshire. There's a list of 48, 4,000 plus uh, peaks up here, including Mount Washington, which is the mm -hmm. biggest around here. And uh, then there's the New England 67. So once you get the New Hampshire 48, you move on to some of the other ones that are in Vermont and Maine. And I've done a couple of the Maine ones, but Katahdin has always been eluding me. Uh, the, you know, the situation, the camps and the parking 
situation books up really quick in the summer mm-hmm. and from where i'm at it's almost a five-hour drive up there yeah. uh so it's I, I'm, I'm hoping this summer we'll be able to check katadin off because i want to do the knife's edge you go you do that you, <laughs> you, we went the other way we, no we didn't yeah, <laughs> just, we just me and a gopro That's yeah, all. Yeah. We, we went the other way and i'll be honest i made we made it past tree line the minute i i did did three rungs up the rebar ladder and i said nope nope i'm not, done I'm not going done. up the straight up part but nope. yeah. <laughs> but i did pretty well i was pretty pretty impressed with myself me how long my... did it take you guys to do the hike uh, oh it was a it was about i want to say it was about three hours to get up there and um it was actually longer to get it was back. longer to get it down took us about, which makes yeah, sense yeah because it's harder going down for you know because old folks like us yeah and plus maine hasn't figured out the meaning of the word switchbacks i was just trip. gonna say <laughs> here, here in the east in the east we don't believe in switchbacks so you know, <laughs> yeah. i've actually yeah. I, i've taken people who are you know used to hiking out west out here and they're like oh you guys don't have mountains well you know five thousand foot is not a mountain they don't realize that we have a, a alpine zone at four thousand feet up here and you know mount washington claims uh, multiple lives every year but yep. you take people up and it's just straight up uh it's just yep. up, up rock i've hiked out west and i mean Unless you're really rock climbing, I guess that's where it'd be more difficult. But all those switchbacks, I actually just prefer doing the mountain goat method and just going straight <laughs> up. Getting up there. I'm used to it, so it works for me, and, uh, and we, we like it out here. So Yeah, yeah. Katahdin kind of schooled us Westerners. <laughs> yeah, yeah it's, it's no joke. All right, so, all right, so... Um, okay, there were things that I wanted before people started dinging me and messaging me with ridiculous things. So I want to know about the Hermit Kingdom of North Korea. What is that? Are there cryptid crabs out there? What is <laughs> no, so that's kind of just the name that North Korea gets because it's been so internationally isolated for such a long time. Mm-hmm. They call it the Hermit Kingdom. And I, I went there gotcha. on a, I visited there in 2015. Um, I was traveling around after I got out of school and you know, family's originally from Europe. So I was there for a while. And then I was going to visit some of my friends from high school that lived in South Korea. So I spent a while in South Korea and I almost jokingly said, oh, wouldn't it be cool to go to North Korea? So uh, lo and behold, I did my research and you can actually go or you could go as a, as a tourist at the time. Of course, Americans are not allowed to go anymore. Um, uh, so it's, it, you know, it's a whole kind of complicated issue. But uh you know, I thought it was interesting. I obviously it's a it's a pretty misunderstood place. There's a lot of really interesting things about it. You know, it's one of these last kind of holdovers of this uh, communist style uh, totalitarian government. You know, uh, and it's just so strange for Korea because South Korea is such a technologically advanced country, fastest internet in the world. I mean, it's it's an economic powerhouse, uh, engineering powerhouse, really an amazing place. In North Korea, it's the same people. It's basically as if somebody put an arbitrary thing in and said, okay, you guys are going to be hundred years in the past and you guys are going to be hundred years in the future in terms of development. And it's, it was very fascinating. So I went on one of those kind of government propaganda tours for five days in North Korea and they take you to all the sites and let you see all this stuff. And um, it was just very interesting. So I did a documentary comparing North and South Korea and just how absurd the whole situation is. But um, it was definitely a bit of a, crazy trip and something I did when I was younger and uh, probably didn't know better. So uh, got that out of my system. So <laughs> I, I would be very interested in watching that. Yeah, I, I come from a social sociology, social work background. And so um, I love studying culture and yeah. people groups and, you know, compare and contrast and you know, so that would be very interesting to me. Make sure we get a link to that or something. Yeah, and I'll check I, it I, out. I, I get, yeah, I actually, I, I was in the military and I was stationed in South Korea. Oh, okay. border, border border patrol. Yeah, I've never been in North Korea, but I saw it. I, mean, I was like, oh, there. right there. Did you but, ever go uh, to the Blue Houses in the Peace Village? No. No. no, so the JSA. So when I was there, you know, you can take tours from Seoul that'll take you to that border region. And on your tour, you know, it's a whole kind of explanation because people don't realize how close the city of Seoul, which is yeah. the biggest city in Korea, is to the North Korean border. It's 45 minutes. So uh, if, as you're driving north on the highway, you'll see all these big concrete things right above the highway. People wonder, what is that? 
they're explosive. So if there were ever to be an invasion, they could destroy all the highways to Seoul because the North Koreans rely heavily on armored machinery and mm -hmm. weapons. So getting tanks and you know uh, cannons, that kind of stuff, in disabling those roads. But you get you're, you're pretty close. And when I was on my tour, there were American GIs who were kind of taking over from the tour guides that would take you into this peace village, which are these blue houses that are right on the border. Um, that's where there's been many diplomatic meetings over the years because those houses are technically it's run by the UN and they're in between both countries. So when you're in the blue house, you can technically cross the border and be in North Korea. So for tourists coming from the South Korea side, it's kind of like, a, oh, look at this. I was in North Korea and mm -hmm. you can take a photo there. But I went from that side. And then when I was in North Korea, they take you on a tour from their side. So within a week span, I was on both sides of the border. I was staring down either side, which was just a really crazy experience. But yeah. uh, the North Korean side, they try to make it a little bit more um, lenient because they want it to make it seem like our, our tour is more fun. They'll let you sit in the chairs and take silly pictures, whereas from the South Korean side, it's very strict. They say you can only take pictures here and here and don't take pictures of the soldiers across or they might shoot. I think they maybe played up the drama a little bit, but it is a very mm -hmm. tense situation area, so sure. I wouldn't play any games, but it was just funny that the North Koreans made it seem like, hey, well, we're the ones having fun here. The Americans and the South Koreans are they're sticklers about everything, so, you know, it's it's, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's kind of childish, but, uh, it's you know, it is a very serious kind of area, but it was, sure. it was pretty interesting. Cool. Yeah. We, we've got an, another question from Squatching Cowboy. He's busy tonight there joe no actually we spent uh some time in texas last year down in the nacogdoches area and the sabine river uh he's asking if you ever thought about going down to texas and checking out the bigfoot down there in the sabine river bottoms you've heard of the sabine thing i think yes it's yeah <laughs> yeah i mean uh i've only been out there uh just driving through there once flew into dallas and went out to falk I was doing a road trip with my nice. brother from Dallas to New Orleans. So we hit up everything kind of along the way. It was like after he got out of high school, I was like, I'll take you on a trip anywhere. And we chose to do that. But we drove through kind of East Texas and you see how different it is. And I've heard just stories over the years and you know, a lot of the researchers that are in that area um, and hearing about kind of some of the stories. I, I just recently had a researcher on my show, Shelly Covington, Montana, who's uh, from Texas and her husband, I guess, had some encounters while hunting in East Texas. And you just hear the stories, you know, over the years. So actually, I was just talking to a guy who lives down in Texas who does the Bigfoot mapping project. A uh, really interesting guy named Scott. He's there in East mm -hmm. Texas. He's in the Scott Houston area. Wool Is it Woolheater? No, that no. Uh, Craig, Craig Woolheater Craig. runs the Texas yeah. Bigfoot Conference. Yeah. But this guy, Scott, he uh, he does. He's got a website called the Bigfoot Mapping Project. I oh, highly okay. recommend it. Uh, he's actually doing some maps for us where we're putting data points together and you basically cool. are taking all these sightings from multiple databases and integrating them with uh, data available from like the National Weather Service, from the uh, you know the National Geological Society, all kinds of organizations that map where animals are, where wildlife corridors are, compare them to Bigfoot sightings, some really interesting stuff. But my point being is that Scott is there in East Texas and he had a sighting actually while on a piece of hunting property that he owns out there of something just standing up and kind of looking at them and walking off. And yeah, Texas is on our radar. We are definitely planning on Texas uh, for our Beyond the Trail series at some point. I don't know when, hopefully this year, but we've got a lot on our docket for this year. Um, so uh, eventually yeah. we'll get to it. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, uh, Shelly Covington and myself, we, we did some big footing down in Falk last nice last uh, together. I meant... We, we've spoke at a couple conferences together. That's how I know her. But um, we actually ended up at a conference in... In Falk. In Falk. Yeah, and, nice. And, and, on accident. Yeah, on accident. <laughs> so her and I and, cool. and uh, Keith Crabtree, which is one of the yep. Crabtree boys, the Crabtree's, <laughs> yeah. down there. Right, right. We got awesome. to go. We got to go out with him. Well, so Joe, you Falk heard... is cool. Yeah. yeah, Joe, you heard it. They're looking to come this year, so get them Texas baked beans ready to go. <laughs> yeah. Texas barbecue, that's all I need. Brisket, uh, <laughs> yeah. I'm good to go. <laughs> yeah. All right, so we do have... Um, Actually, you know what? We we need to do another one. Oh, jeez. It's time. It's time. <laughs> hey, we got bills to pay. <laughs> yeah. Time flies. Which, which one? Pick one, I don't care. That one. Okay. 
Have you ever wondered how Bigfoot research pays for itself? I'll bet it's all those government grants that, 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 that the POTUS is giving out to Bigfoot researchers, isn't it? Yeah, oh, that's it. Yeah. No, no, Bigfoot research doesn't pay for itself. But with your help, it can continue to go forward. And here are some ways that you can support Squatch America directly. Number one, YouTube. You're on our YouTube channel right now. And it helps us. It really does. If you like, subscribe, and comment, and share our videos. If You can do all four of those things. It takes two seconds. You can even go back and watch our videos. Put them on the background. Just let them run on your phone in the other room. <laughs> it doesn't matter. Hit one of the playlists. And that actually helps us a lot. You'd be surprised. And, and you don't have to comment just once. No, you can comment several times. Yes. And secondly, you can join our page now. Uh, there's a button right below that you can click and it says join the content and you will get exclusive content uh, from us that we do when we're traveling. Another way that you can support us is by going to patreon.com slash watch America and you can join either one of our membership tiers, either the Squatch Americans or the Inner Circle. Mm -hmm. Inner Circle sounds like a government secret society. It is. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, the biggest feature of having a membership on Patreon is that we have monthly live face-to-face -face, uh, Zoom chats with our membership. So, mm -hmm. um, First Friday of every month. Generally speaking. Generally speaking. Generally speaking. <laughs> Sometimes if a holiday interferes, well, we like our holidays too. But um, those are the biggest things. And also, uh, Patreons specifically get a sneak peek of all of the new research um, that is coming our way. And the, the final way that you can support us financially um, is to go to buymeacoffee.com. Uh, and you can make a one-time donation five dollars uh, to make sure that we stay in the habit that we have developed over the years of drinking coffee yeah because squatching late at night you got to be alert you do so from YouTube support to patreon and buy me a coffee those are the three ways that you can um, use your pocket change to make sure that Bigfoot research keeps moving forward so and we greatly appreciate it and love do. every one of you and um, anyone who buys us a coffee, um, we will drink in your honor. All right, we're back. Just yeah. in case anyone is mistaken, um, none of those are scripted. <laughs> <laughs> just like our show, we make up as we go. Sometimes <laughs> right. you just got to wing it, right? That's right. Yep. Okay, so we have a question from one of our, uh, oh, from Donna. Donna, uh, and she owns the Harmonyville Country Store. I think it's what it's called in Vermont. And, and she, she's the one that discovered this cast. Awesome. Yes. She right wants on. to, she asks, what do you know on the Bridgewater Triangle? I grew up in that triangle, still have my home there, and then moved to the Bennington Triangle. Not on purpose. Ha, ha, ha. <laughs> a lot of triangle going around. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, it's an interesting area. Uh, you know, back at, about three, four years ago, I was really getting more involved in looking in that area. And I did a documentary uh, interviewing a researcher down there who claimed to have seen a sighting uh, of a Bigfoot in the 1970s, I believe. There's a lot of still space down there. Now, the only thing is it is south of Boston. So it's it, it, there's a lot of population. So I don't know if these areas would exactly support, you know, multiple Bigfoot surviving maybe as a transitory area. I don't know. Uh, it is, albeit it is isolated, but it has a lot of weird history. You know, you've got stories of everything paranormal you can imagine under the sun out of that area. You know, make of that what you will. But there's stories of pterodactyls, you know, thunderbirds. Uh, I, I heard of actually from a guy in Arizona who grew up in that area of seeing like a gigantic bird in that area. Uh, black dogs with glowing red eyes. A lot of these sort of urban legend stories too. And there have been Bigfoot stories for quite a while, including one which is really interesting in which two police officers had their squad car lifted off the ground and dropped by what they described as sort of a gorilla-like animal. This happened, I believe, in the 80s. It was a, a woman who lived at the dead end of a street, kind of abutting the swamp, was having 
um, chickens stolen, and so they thought it was maybe a bear. Bears were kind of rare in that part of Massachusetts at the time. They still are in a lot of southern New England areas. You don't see bears as often down there, so they thought maybe the bear was getting the chickens. So the cops were out there at the end of the block, and I guess they got their car lifted up and dropped, and something walked away. And my, my friend Paulino, researcher and journalist from Rhode Island, he actually interviewed the police officer who happened to many years ago and said that he was, you know, he, he didn't know what it was, but it lifted the back of the car and dropped it and walked off, and they were perplexed that something could do something like that. So, yeah, the Bridgewater Triangle area, I think what's happened now is that it's been it's kind of has a reputation of its own. So a lot of ghost hunting and paranormal type groups go out there. And, you know, a lot of their methodology isn't exactly scientific, to say the least. And that's not a dig at them. I mean, everyone have have, have fun the way you like. But I think what happens now is that it has a sort of aura to it. You know, every time you go into the Bridgewater Triangle, you're going to have something weird happen. So maybe you have a ghost hunting group that's going in there and there just happened to be a couple of Bigfoot people a couple of miles away because it's not a big area. You know, there's there are still some some large areas of swamp that you have to really have muck boots to get in or kayak in. And in the summer, it's it's uh, horrible with the bugs. Uh, but let's say you got a ghost group in one area and then you've got the Bigfoot people and they start doing some wood knocks and then the ghost people are like, oh, my God, we experienced Bigfoot while we were doing a ghost hunt out in the swamp. <laughs> yeah. So I think I think that that kind of thing might be happening. Uh, that's not to say there haven't been you know legitimate experiences in the area. Uh, I think one of the pr- uh, particularly disturbing elements of the Bridgewater Triangle is you have all these different parts of it. There's the middle of it, which is the Hockamock Swamp which was named by the Wampanoag Native Americans. And Plymouth Colony was very close to there. So that was the first sort of settlement, English settlement in that area. And they went to war with the Wampanoags, who considered this swamp called the Hockamox to be the place where the spirits dwell. That's what they called it. And they kind of considered it cursed for whatever reason. They retreated into it during what was called King Philip's War. It was a very bloody conflict. It was just horrific. Uh, and, you know, a lot of uh, stories that supposedly the Wampanoags, you know, upon betrayal, uh, by the settlers, they cursed the area, so that's why you've had all this strange stuff happen. There's a lot of, to this day, strange uh, cases of, you know, a lot more mental kind of uh, issues that people have living in that area for whatever reason. I don't know what all that means, but as I mentioned, one of the more disturbing parts is the true crime aspect of it. So you have the Freetown State Forest, which is at the southern end of the Bridgewater Triangle, where uh, it used to be kind of a place where the mafia groups from Boston and Providence, Rhode Island, would go and do their dirty work and take people out there, you know, do what the, those kind of guys do. But then there was also the satanic sort of panic thing that was going on in the 70s and 80s. Well, in that part of uh, Freetown, Fall River, Massachusetts, it was real. There was a cult out there that actually killed members and were sacrificing animals. And uh, there's a great documentary done by a buddy of mine named the Bridgewater, called The Bridgewater Triangle. And you can mm-hmm. see it on I've YouTube, I believe now. Yeah, he does a good job covering all of the, from the Bigfoot stuff to that true crime. But he talks to a detective there who was in the Freetown area, and they, he says, you know, the stuff that they found out there, they would find uh, infants' bodies stuffed in the ground and, you know, just horrific, horrific human stuff. So an area that does have stories of cryptids and Bigfoot-like creatures and stuff like the Puckwudgies, but it has a very disturbing other element. I actually filmed a documentary a few years ago with a crew from Minnesota called Chasing Legends, and we went to do, like, a Puckwudgie thing. This was a week before COVID lockdown started. So it was like the, the whole world was kind of on edge. It was weird. But talking to some of the locals and gas stations were like, you guys know about the puck wedgie things? And they're like, well, not really. But, uh, you know, I don't walk my dog in this part of the woods anymore because I ran into people in black robes out there. Or, uh, you know, one gas station lady said, yeah, my family was involved in the cult stuff. And, you know, hunters up on airport roads still say they see people doing rituals out there. And, of course, there's a lot of copycats. So, People will go out there and take animals and kill them, and you're not killing humans, but doing weird rituals. So for whatever reason, that Bridgewater Triangle area just has a very long history of weird stuff, a lot of haunted places, too, as, as much of New England is, um, you know, supposedly haunted, uh, you know, a lot of old architecture and settlements. So it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting area. You know, whether or not there are still Bigfoot in the area, I don't know. I, I've heard of some reports possibly in that area to this day. But I think if it's if it's living in that area, it might be tough because there are some remote spots. But I don't imagine it would be the greatest place to be when you have all of northern New England. And you guys know what that part of northern Maine looks like and pretty much the same like that in my state here in New Hampshire. And basically two areas like the Bennington Triangle in Vermont connects to the Adirondacks. You've got millions of acres of contiguous wilderness uh, with very few people. So that would be just a much better habitat for, uh, you know, many Sasquatch to live in. 
Well, I think we need to get the she-squatchers out there to kind of figure <laughs> yeah. it out. Yeah. Because yeah. they've got connections in that realm. <laughs> in that yeah. realm. <laughs> yeah, that's like outside of my wheelhouse. I don't. I'm, yeah, I always I joke around. I say I'm not really into ghosts. Um, I'm much more comfortable in uh, in the woods at night than I am in some like asylum at night. And uh, I probably my mind would probably pre- play tricks on itself, and I'd be like, "What yeah. was that noise?" You know. And I would lose yeah. all sense of rationale. Where I'm in the woods, you know, it's a little bit easier to kind of. Uh, be like, all right, well, what did we just hear? Let's try and figure it out. Let's deduce what we were, we're hearing because, you know, not everything you hear out there is Bigfoot. Very rarely it probably is. So, um... And some of us would just start meditating. <laughs> <laughs> no, there, there's, it's kind of interesting to me. One of the things uh, in, in my research, you know, when I was uh, anthropologist with the Native American tribes, uh, a lot of the Bigfoot areas, like I know Mount Katahdin's one of them. It's considered yeah. a, the Devil's Mountain. It's Pamola, to the, to the, yeah. And a lot of these places that are are known Bigfoot areas today, uh, in Native American history, were forbidden evil places to the natives. You know, I get that a lot. Okay. Yeah. So- I mean, you've got the, the, I think a lot of these uh, Indian burial grounds as well. I mean, because a lot of them are unmarked, it's not really known where they are. I mean, I don't know if that has a direct correlation to Bigfoot or anything, but it is interesting. I mean, if you talk to certainly some of these tribes, uh, you know, I've got some friends that are involved in that sort of cultural world up here in, in New England. And, you know, they, they say that, yeah, uh, maybe it acts as like a guardian of these sacred areas. Um, you know, there's a lot of different mythology. The Hoopa in Northern California, they, I guess, have some similar sort of stories. So... Uh, you know, I don't want to put words in their mouths. Obviously, they they have their own history and all that stuff, but we can only talk about what we've heard and what's been relayed to us. But it's really interesting because, I mean, those people have been here for tens of thousands of years. So, You're right. One mm-hmm. of the things that really got me into Bigfoot was uh, when I was working in California with the Miwok Indian tribes there in the Yosemite Valley area. Right, right. And... Uh, they were showing me pictographs and petroglyphs and I, I saw a symbol that I didn't recognize and I asked one of the elders what's that and he goes well that's Bigfoot and I kind of looked at him funny like they exist and he looked at me like I was stupid and said yeah and walked off you know <laughs> but, but uh, since then I've found tons and, and a lot of pictographs and petroglyphs especially in Central California because that's where I was working Yeah. but but a lot of that's another thing that's a lot of the pictographs will also have danger signs around right. Bigfoot and uh, I've, I've found in the Native American world they're either spiritual good beings or they're bad evil things and it depending Kidnap on the women and children right yeah yeah depending on which tribe you're with is which direction you're gonna they're gonna go with their stories yeah, and, and something, you know, I find really interesting about that is that, you know, these people are obviously on, uh, you know, like people indigenous to any other part of the world. You know, they, they were there for thousands of years, so they develop a relationship with local wildlife. Now, a lot of these tribes, you know, a lot of animals have mystical powers, you know, that we know about. And I, I'm kind of of the opinion that Bigfoot is probably a, a flesh and blood uh, primate of some kind, you know, n- not necessarily Gigantopithecus or something like a gorilla, but somewhere, you know, whatever it is, even if it's very close to humans, it's obviously still a primate like we are. But uh, a, a very fascinating story I had the pleasure of hearing at one point was uh, by a professor, I believe she's from Oxford or Cambridge University, uh, Dr. Anna Nakaris. She's a primatologist. Uh, she's been on a couple programs actually with Meldrum and some other mm-hmm. yeah. um, people that have looked at sort of Bigfoot nest type stuff uh, on the history channel i believe but she gave a lecture at one of lauren coleman's cryptozoology conferences and talked about studying slow lorises in parts of indonesia i believe and they're these small little um you're seeing like bush baby uh these they're these kind of little monkeys and they have uh they're not monkeys but they're small primate like animals that have these big eyes and they're nocturnal and they actually can have some sort of toxic kind of venom um saliva if you get bit so in this particular jungle areas in parts of Indonesia, she said that they would talk to different tribes and within one geographic area, uh, you'd have four different groups of people, four different tribes or villages, and every village or tribe would have their own sort of stories about the slow lorises. Uh, in one area, they would be, if you came across one in the woods, you were going to be cursed. Uh, in another area, if you saw one in the woods, it was a sign of good luck and good things were coming your way. 
In another area, it was a, a sacred symbol. You know, if you saw a slow loris, it meant that, you know, uh, it, the area, it's kind of a protector of the area. And then in a, I believe in one of the other ones, they, if you saw a slow loris, you should kill it right away. Um, so there was, it, so it's interesting, the same animal, but you have all these different stories about the creature that, you know, we all, we know what it is now. And, you know, uh, as far as we know, it doesn't have mystical powers. I mean, maybe in another realm or something, maybe it does, but uh, it's, it's just, it's so interesting how humans, we, re, we uh, have a relationship with the environment and how different groups of people interpret things differently. Yeah. I think he just explained religion. Right there. <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> no, Boom. no, it's really, it is kind of interesting. In the past couple of years, we've been traveling all over the United States. We've been in, I don't know. I don't know, 27 states, 27 something states. like that. Amazing. And, uh, and we have, you know, Bigfoot research stickers on the side of our truck and all that stuff. So when we're parked at parking lots, inevitably you know we'll go in a grocery store we'll come back out there'll be people standing by our truck waiting <laughs> to tell me stories that's so which great is, <laughs> which is awesome and uh we've interviewed in the last couple of years oh hundreds and hundreds of people uh telling me their stories what's really interesting is that um we found kind of a correlation but up north Bigfoot's really kind of cool. Down south, they're kind of mean. When we get a lot of different, you know, that's something that I had heard, but actually experiencing it by interviewing people, uh, I was able to, you know, come to that conclusion myself saying, hey, all these people in the south saying this thing was growling at me and throwing rocks and, you know, (laughs) but up north, it's like not. Maybe it's it's the way people interact with the environments. I mean, I don't know. It's uh, yeah. that could possibly be. It could be if you look at an area like down south where you have other lots of creatures in the woods that are pretty dangerous as compared to maybe some northern areas where you know you do have big predators, but you've got snakes and alligators and alligator snapping turtles, alligator gar, exactly. everything alligator. <laughs> That's yeah. I don't know, but it, it's it's really interesting. You know, I've I've had the pleasure of interviewing quite a few people here in my state of New Hampshire, um, and. It's so fascinating now having the chance to go kind of like yourselves across the country uh-huh. doing all these different sort of films and going to different areas and seeing how it culturally is impacted. Uh, something I've noticed in the past few years is it's that kind of, I call it the kind of post-finding Bigfoot effect. After that show was on air, you know, if pe- some people love it, some people hate it, but uh, it, what it did was it absolutely mainstreamed a lot of Bigfoot. So you have lots of areas, wilderness areas that are embracing Bigfoot as a mascot and all the stores will have Bigfoot stuff, and especially if they have a local Bigfoot story. But uh, you, you talk to folks, you know, out west, especially in the Pacific Northwest, the culture has been there for, you know, going on 40 years at this point, 50 years of, you know, Bigfoot is kind of a lot of people still maybe see it as a joke in the Pacific Northwest, but they probably know somebody who's seen it, right? They're not, mm-hmm. they're not as willing to, uh, you know, kind of keep that information hidden. Whereas up here in the Northeast, I found that there's a lot of sightings. There are a lot of people who have reports, but it is almost like pulling teeth to try to get people to talk about these things. Because culturally, I mean, uh, I've talked to folks that had sightings uh, 30, 40 years ago that didn't think it was Bigfoot at the time. You know, they thought, well, if they even knew what Bigfoot was, a lot of them didn't. They thought, well, Bigfoot's in the Pacific Northwest. What I saw was a monster. So it wasn't until years later, after maybe watching a program or, or reading another report online, that they said, that is just like what I saw. Maybe I saw Bigfoot. Uh, and I notice a lot of people, especially in the logging communities up here in, in Maine, there's a lot of those loggers. They don't tell their stories until after they've retired or many years later, because nobody wants to be seen as the guy who saw Bigfoot on the job. That's something that you're going to be probably be mocked for for years. So uh, culturally, it's it's very different here. And, and that always intrigues me, you know, uh, especially if it's a traumatic encounter. Why are people subjugating themselves to something like this? Then they don't want to tell anyone the story. They'll tell me the story if they trust me after they've spoken to me. And they, you know, I, I've proved that I'm not just going to put it on some cheesy reality show and exploit them in their story. But they don't want their pictures or anything associated with the story. They'll tell you it once they sort of once you've gained their trust. And that's about it, you know. And so I have a uh, almost 70 report uh, reports in my database at this point of local New Hampshire stories that haven't been on the BFRO, haven't been on any other databases because these people just don't really want to uh, put them out there, don't want to give more details. Like I've, I've run into people doing library lectures and they'll give, they'll tell the stories afterwards because they feel safe, they kind of can gauge what you're like. Um, so it's just been absolutely interesting noticing in the different areas. So like in Ohio, there's a Bigfoot culture that's been there at least since the 90s. So people are a little more open to talk about Bigfoot as opposed to, you know, Maine or New Hampshire. 
so it's comparing that to what I kind of was experiencing in New Hampshire and this area in Massachusetts and Vermont as well. And then going to other places in the country and seeing how much more open it is. It's like we're we're maybe a couple decades behind in terms of that kind of cultural impact that Bigfoot's had, whereas the reports are here and they go back uh, centuries. I mean, there are strange stories, uh, colonial stories, all sorts of weird things that in some cases get attributed to ghost behavior. I mean, there are stories of haunted woods and haunted places where ghosts throw rocks from the woods or, or make weird noises. And I think actually a lot of those stories may be Bigfoot related. Uh, you know, it's, 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 I've even heard people tell me, you know, I heard wood knocks out in the woods and they were getting closer and closer. And we thought it was, you know, the, uh, a deceased friend of ours sending us a message. I mean, so people, it's easier to believe that because I think it's more culturally widely known that something like ghosts, you know, people talk about all the time. Everyone has a ghost story, right? It's easier to accept that than something like a Sasquatch, which you know, in a flesh and blood sense would make more sense as a logical explanation. So, uh, but it, you know, it's just, it's really interesting noticing these trends and, and seeing how uh, the Bigfoot topic is sort of expanding and there's more people that are willing to talk about the stories, which I hope that we can, you know, continue to learn about uh, some of these stories that have happened years ago, even. Yeah, absolutely. We, uh, we run into, well, I actually run into something similar all the time is the fact that we, we do, uh, like town hall meetings in places when when we go to we'll find some place we can set up and and put a little advertising out and see how many people show up and uh we do we've done several of them across the united states i mean we did one in maine and we had quite a few people come and you know i'll i'll do a little spiel spiel about about my history and research and stuff and uh I'll get a few people will tell me their stories, but it's not until after the thing and everybody's left that one guy that sits in the back and doesn't say anything until, you know, right. And, right. And he waits till everybody leaves and then he'll come catch me in the parking lot. Maybe and, look around. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> and that's where the real good stories come from. And oh, I absolutely. hate, I hate yeah. to be the wet blanket here, You're, but no, we, we are down to two minutes. Oh my gosh. So, throw that last one no, up. No, we don't need to. We don't need to. Yeah, okay. All right, guys, go to squashamerica.com and buy our stuff. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and anyway, um, it has any, been... Got any more questions? There were all sorts of them. We are so sorry we could not get to all your questions. There are a lot of people surmising that it's the heat and the mosquitoes that really took Bigfoot off in the south, and I would have to say well, probably The right. bugs get bad in northern Maine, though. Yes, yeah, they do. Yes, really bad. Um, you, I'll tell you what. Hey, Joe in Texas, you haven't lived until you've seen a black fly in Maine. It's true. They're, they're the size of, you know. Yes. And, yeah. and, and in case you need it, we came up with a bomb that actually keeps them off of him. It's, yeah. uh, it's a patchouli-based stuff called No Bite Me that you can get at the Katahdin General Store. Mixed with, <laughs> mixed with Benadryl cream. Yeah. You'll be golden for about 15 minutes. I wish Carrick and I had that when we were on our expedition up there because Carrick got oh. eaten alive in Maine. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Poor guy. So, so one thing I did see in the chat as uh, Joe Pass from uh, Squatching Cowboy. Cowboy says, "You need to go to Texas. We're going to go to Texas in the fall. We'll meet you there. He's got a spot just south of Falk, Arkansas. You bring the brisket, <laughs> and we'll bring us. Yeah, <laughs> and he'll bring the barbecue. Okay, so um, for everyone in this general area, this is for Craig and anyone else who's listening. Yes, we will be in La Grande tomorrow at two o'clock at Local Harvest Pizza for our own little Bigfoot meetup over there. So two o'clock, Local Harvest Pizza in La Grande. Oregon. Uh, Oregon. Yes. <laughs> if you can be there. If you can be there, Alex, it'd be great. Um, <laughs> yeah. uh, just hop on a plane right now. Yeah. Um, right, right, right. But um, it is really time for us to close. Yeah. We will definitely have you back. We should have oh, a whole small town monsters crew on it just because I yeah, that's what I wanted to know about. And we never actually get there in these interviews. So so maybe um, we can get all of you on at the same time. Yeah, that'd, yeah, be, great. that'd be great. We're about to do uh, quite an intense trip at some point. I can't say the date specifically, but okay. we're going to be heading down south to Florida and Georgia soon to do some stuff down there. So I there's a lot there coming right up. Now. Yeah, oh, so actually, awesome. I, I did some squatching. In fact, I lived in in uh, Columbus, Georgia for a while and uh, did a lot of 
alligator gar fishing oh, in nice. the, on the on the Chattahoochee River. So Chattahoochee <laughs> River, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, bring up the slides. Oh, bring up the slides. Yes, because it, we are now going overtime. Thank okay, you, sorry. all of you people who are staying overtime. <laughs> yeah. While I find some buttons to push. So as always, just remember. Our job is to investigate the unexplained. Not to explain the uninvestigated. So, as and uh, until next week, thank you so much for liking and being here with us and for growing our audience. Keep inviting people to these things. Um, mm. We really do. Uh, we really do love you all, and we love the community that we are. We, this Alex this is really a weird community, <laughs> but, but they're awesome. They're, they're There's awesome. a lot of good people. Yeah. yeah, and and it's really becoming kind, especially in these weird times where we're all separated. Um, we are becoming family. So, anyway, until next week, we will see you all. Have, keep it squatchy and go out and find Bigfoot. Bye. <laughs>